News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's been closed to non-essential travel for about 18 months now, but the Canada-U.S. border set to reopen this morning, allowing fully vaccinated Americans and permanent residents to cross over for non-essential travel. So what does that mean for some of Canada's border towns out there, even though there are these continuing concerns of COVID-19 cases creeping up too? Well, Sean O'Shea, Global News investigative reporter, is live this morning near Niagara Falls and joins us now. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, Simi. What's it like in that town? Are they gearing up to see a lot of travelers today? Oh, boy, have they ever. Uh, We were here for most of the weekend. The mayor was excited. The local businesses were very excited. And to give you a sense, I'm at the Rainbow Bridge, which is right in downtown Niagara Falls, connecting Niagara Falls, New York, to Ontario. Uh, Many of these people have been in line for an hour and a half. The queue is long. It spans the bridge. uh, And many people spend an hour to an hour and a half in line. These are Americans who either have cottages in parts of Ontario or family that they haven't seen in 18 months. Nobody's coming over so far expressing an interest to go shopping. It's all about cottages and it's all about seeing family because this is something that they were deprived of for so long. And what are the requirements then for people to come in now? They have to be fully vaccinated. Uh, They have to uh, have had their second shot if they're having a two-dose regimen uh, two weeks ago. Uh, They have to be able to prove that. They have to show that they've tested negative for COVID-19. That all has to be entered on the ArriveCan app, and then they're scrutinized at the the border stop. And normally, Simi, uh, it would take a minute or so, maybe 90 seconds at at a primary stop. It's taking five, six, seven minutes in some cases. So that's one of the reasons why it's so slow. They're methodically going through all of the data, all of the information that people have before they're actually allowed in. But I'm telling you, there's so much excitement. I mean, talking to Americans, in my reporting experience, most Americans want to express their opinion about any given subject. (laughs) And here, coming across the border, they're fist pumping, high fiving, they're talking, they're, they're willing to talk about their their willingness to come over here. And all these people wanted to be the first because they're just so desperate to see family, so desperate to, to come and, and do things that they once took for granted. Right. I can see that too. And yes, you're right. Americans do love to talk about how they're <laughs> feeling. Uh, but what about the, so the border communities? We have a lot of them here too in Metro Vancouver. But like Niagara Falls, are, are businesses hoping this is going to be some kind of a, a lifeline now that the borders are open, that maybe today is about family, but you know people will come buy stuff? Absolutely. In Niagara Falls, Ontario, 25% of the tourists normally are Americans, but they account for 50% of the spending. They come longer, they spend more. So definitely that, that is something that they have in mind. And, and they've been gearing up trying to hire extra staff people at this time of the summer, which hasn't been easy. It's not easy in BC. It's certainly not easy in Ontario. Hard to get people. So they're hoping for that. But that's really something that, that is secondary right now. The, the feeling is that most of the people coming over, at least for the few days, for the first few days, are going to be visiting family, maybe even going beyond Niagara Falls to Toronto and uh, other parts of Ontario. But, uh, but definitely, they will welcome the money that Americans bring that they haven't seen in 506 days. Any concerns, Sean, though, like given that the Delta variant does seem to be raging and that we are in this fourth wave? There, there, there are. Uh, I interviewed some people in Niagara-the-Lake down the way uh, and yesterday, and there is a sense of some trepidation. 
Um, many Canadians here, at least, have have gotten used to the fact that it's Canada only. There's not been a lot of uh, foreign visitors, although people could fly in. So the idea that now we're going to have uh, people at a time that is, um, uh, you know, we have more cases. Ontario had a higher case count yesterday than we've seen since June. So there, there are people that are, are concerned about that, but there's also the reality. They see that this is going to happen. It's going to happen now. We just don't know when Canadians are for certain going to be able to drive across the border to the United States. won't be before August the 21st at the earliest. Right. So for now, this is just kind of one-way traffic. It's just Americans coming up here. You got it, and a lot of them. (laughs) Sounds like it. Sean, thank you very much. Thanks, Simeon. All the best. That's Sean O'Shea, Global National Investigative Reporter. He is at... This is Mornings with Simeon. How do you feel about the border with the U.S. being open today, that we're allowing fully vaccinated Americans to come up here for non-essential travel, and it sounds like they are wasting no time in doing so. But let me know how you're feeling about that, especially in light of the increased COVID-19 cases we've seen because of the Delta variant. Send me at cknw.com. So this hasn't happened since, what, March of 2020. We're going to find out more, though, about how things are looking from the other side of this, and that is from Washington, D.C. So joining us now is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington producer and correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. All right. So here we're doing this. What has the reaction been like in the U.S., in Washington, to this? Well, look, there is uh, kind of some, some, you know, joyous moves from uh, some of the lawmakers in Washington that represent the border states uh, who have been really looking to try and get this cross-border travel uh, back in place, even though it's only one way. They're saying that this is a first step, but there is some uh, general fear around the U.S. as well as this goes forward, and that is because the COVID crisis is only getting worse by the day right now. The the seven-day average in the United States is 10 times worse than what it was uh, about 45 days ago, uh, and this is really opening up that question again of is this the time to be allowing for a return to travel, uh, especially when things are just so bad in the U.S.? Yeah, let's talk about that. So U.S. clearly deep into this fourth wave of the pandemic. Do we know like which states are being particularly hard hit? Well, it depends on what you want to say with particularly hard hit. If you're looking at a place like Florida, which is seeing record-breaking hospitalizations and it's seeing record-breaking daily cases, it is being hard hit. If you want to talk about students, areas like Georgia and Arkansas have seen nearly 2,000 students be put in quarantine. They just went back to school last week and an outbreak uh, is now threatening kids. If you want to talk about where community transmission is taking place, that's all 50 states, including the 11 border states, where mask recommendations if you're indoors, are now in place from the CDC. So this really is, uh, you can kind of pinpoint a city or a state uh, and you will find a stat that tells you things aren't good. And has any of this, the increasing number of cases and the concerns surrounding that, has any of this increased vaccination rates? Like are more people lining up? So look, the number of uh, vaccines uh, being administered in the United States is up something like 20 or 25 percent over the last couple of weeks. It's still below 500,000 a day. Some of this is really concentrated in the U.S. Deep South that's had some of the lowest vaccine rates uh, since this kind of drive began earlier this year. Uh, And it really is being driven home by this reality that things are going to get worse if you are in an area of the country that is simply not protected. Uh, That's what we're seeing kind of play out through Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama. 
Alabama that have really struggled to get these numbers above 30 and 35 percent. But really across the country, there is this drive to try and get people vaccinated, which is why you're seeing these drastic measures out of places like uh, New York saying, look, if you're not vaccinated, you can't come into a restaurant or you can't go into a gym, really trying to make unvaccination become a burden for those people. But when you're only looking at a number of like 400 or 500,000 vaccinations a day and there's roughly 80 million people still not protected, uh, it's not going quick enough for, for many members of the Biden administration. Yeah. And let's talk about the number of children who've gotten COVID-19 in the past few weeks. What more do we know about that? Yeah, look, the number of, of kids who have been infected with COVID uh, just in the last week or so, uh, it's about 20% of all infections. And when you have a daily case rate of in and around 100,000 per day, that's a lot of people that are under the age of 18, under the age of 12, that are falling ill. Uh, there are reports coming out of Texas where there are six, seven, eight, nine-month-old children uh, being put into pediatric care in hospitals because they've become sick. The problem is a lot of these hospitals are running out of pediatric beds because of the number of kids that are coming in. So they're being airlifted to other cities. This is a growing problem across Texas, across Florida and across Alabama. Uh, but the fact that you have these children under 12 that aren't eligible for a vaccine yet, that's where some of this problem lies when you have such a broad part of this country still unprotected and still so many schools still waiting to open. It's kind of an open question to what happens. Right. And I was even reading about how some you know Republican governors, like the governor of Arkansas, who's saying they regret putting into place laws that banned masks. You talk about a, a party that's split right now. Governor Asa Hutchinson saying, look, laws are in place. We can't go back and undo those. And I regret doing that in the first place. Contrast that with someone like Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, who's saying, look, if you try to implement a mask mandate in your school district, I'm going to pull funding from your school uh, because the state has gone and banned any kind of measure to try and slow the spread, trying to make this an individual right, as opposed to saying as a collective whole, we can do this better. This really is a split amongst the Republican Party, partly being driven driven by the former president, but partly being driven by the politics that have been at play for the last uh, year and a half. Contrast that with Democratic states uh, that really are kind of all in the same ballpark. But it's worth pointing out here, even in those Democratic states that are doing a little bit better than the Republican-led states, they're not putting any efforts in place to try and go beyond mask mandates to try and slow the spread even though they're seeing their states now in high and substantial risk for community transmission. Okay, so with all of that going on then, Reggie, it, it sounds like there's really no plan right now to open the border to Canadians. Yeah, at least not until August 21st. Uh, and I would be surprised if they decide to reopen uh, to Canadians or international travelers on the 21st, given the fact that they've been so uh, opaque in what these working groups and interagency groups are trying to come up with when it comes to criteria for allowing travel. Worth pointing out here that the European Union is set to meet this week. They could possibly reimpose travel restrictions on Americans across the 27 uh, nation block after lifting that restriction back in June. Because things are so bad here, if that happens, that could put Canada alone as one of the few nations actually letting Americans in. So there is no plan to let anybody into this country right now. There's also potential plans to not let Americans go anywhere else. Interesting. All right, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, talking about the situation in the United States. So we are allowing fully vaccinated Americans in as of this morning. And it sounds like a lot of that, of course, is for non, it is non-essential travel, as long as they're fully vaccinated, but a lot of it is recreational. It's not just coming up to visit family and friends that they haven't seen in a long time. I have gotten several emails from people this morning talking about the BC Ferries situation. 
and how incredibly busy BC Ferries is this morning. Uh, and they say they believe it's because BC Ferries has right now a lot of Americans making bookings, going on, traveling to the island, all of that kind of back and forth. So if you've noticed this as well, like if it's impacting tourism right away, let me know so we can tell that story. Simi at cknw.com. A little bit later on the show, actually, we'll talk more about the potential tourist impact of the Americans that are arriving up here. Now, it wasn't that long ago, 15, 20 minutes ago, we spoke to Andrew McPherson, global news reporter at the border, a PSARGE, saying that when it comes to the lineup, right now heading northbound, it's lined up back to the actual PSARGE monument there. So that's a lot of people coming up here and the border just opened. So we'll be continuing to follow this. How do you feel about the border opening this morning to fully vaccinated Americans and permanent residents? Do you think, okay, yes, let's do this. Do you have any concerns because of the spread of the Delta variant? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, today in the tourism and hospitality industry, I would imagine they're feeling a little bit optimistic, hopefully because of the opening up of the border with Americans. They're coming up here if they are fully vaccinated and if they are American citizens or permanent residents. So what does that mean for us, though, in terms of our COVID-19 numbers? Are we going to see them rise even more because of the people that we are now welcoming here? To talk more about that this morning, Dr. Sarah Otto joins us, a professor and mathematical biologist at UBC. Thank you very much for being back with us. Absolutely. Thank How do you. you feel about this? Any, are you nervous about this at all? No, I'm like, I, you know, I, I think it's the right call. As a, This is one of the few incentive travel for getting vaccinated. And so the, the requirement to be double vaccinated as well as to have a test before departing for Canada, I think are very um, safe moves. And hopefully we'll start to inspire people um, in the United States to get vaccinated and here too in Canada when the, when the United States reciprocates, which is expected later this month. Right. So we all do all this talk about vaccine passports, but the truth is anybody who wants to travel, this is going to be reality for them. That's right. You want to go to Disneyland? Well, you better get your family vaccinated. Okay. So what do you think about where we're at, Dr. Otto, with the numbers right now? When you see what's happening in the central Okanagan, that's concerning. That's right. And it's the trend in numbers, the um, doubling time that we watch particularly. And um, what we're seeing is doubling, and we're seeing doubling in um, week after week in several different areas. So Central Okanagan is one, but there are other communities that are also um, showing this doubling in high rates. And those um, tend to be the communities with lower vaccination rates in our province. So, uh, you know, on average, we have about 72% of the population vaccinated, but in some communities, it's much lower than that, closer to 50%. So do you think that this push will help then, that we'll manage to get those areas vaccinated that have been lagging perhaps a little bit? Well, the the push that the province has been doing by bringing in mobile and pop-up and other vaccination clinics that are more accessible, I think is really important in those communities. And I I think this is also... uh, You know, it's really time to talk uh, um, across BC that... This virus, especially Delta, the new variant, is able to spread well enough, um, you know, in the, in, within individuals that are infected. It has about a thousand times more viruses than the old variants, and it just can get from person to person more quickly. And that means that 
everybody needs to get vaccinated. I don't think, you know, I don't think anymore that we're talking about, um, you know, we can get to 70% and then we'll have herd immunity. We're basically at a point where, as far as I can tell, if you don't want to get COVID, if you don't want to land in the hospital from COVID, you have to get vaccinated. When you model cases then and taking what's happening right now, where do you see us headed in the next few weeks? Well, you know, I, I do very much like the recent strategy of more localized mandates, so both the mask mandates and then more recently the indoor crowding mandates that we're seeing in the central Okanagan. I think that's the right way to go, especially because um, there are these pockets where we're seeing COVID take off. It's not... Um, you know, we're not seeing high numbers across the province, but I do think we have to be more proactive and maybe go in earlier. There's quite a few other commu- um, local health authorities that could use those mandates right now. Right. That was a big deal for us, wasn't it? To put in place like regional restrictions, which is something health officials had been re- like really yeah. resisting for a long time. That's right. That's right. So you think this should be like we should be quicker to do it next time? That's right. And, you know, again, that's another incentive. If you're in a community, if you're a leader in a community with a really low vaccination rate and you don't want your community to be shut down again, this is really the push um, that needs to be made right now. Oh, interesting. So you think it would be an incentive then, but you need you need leadership to step up for that. That's right. Okay. Does the Delta variant worry you when you see the way it's spreading? Yeah, the way it's spreading and also the... Um, data on hospitalization rates per case. Um, so it's also more severe. That said, the vaccine is, um, you know, um, being a really great protection. It's protecting people from um, getting infected in the first place and from going into the hospital if they do get infected. So vaccines are this re- are still providing this really strong protective barrier for us. Do you think we're getting enough information from all that? I know that's been an ongoing issue, right, for the last year and a half. Many people like in a position like yours say, listen, we need more data. Yeah, it's still it's still a struggle. And I think what people need to recognize is that is that scientists across the world are chipping in and we can only chip in as much as the data is available to us. Um, but it's, it, but it really is a remarkable, um, we, we're learning so much from these analyses throughout the world. Um, so yeah, data, data accessibility continues to be a problem. It's especially a problem in Canada and here in BC because of, um, the really strong privacy, um, respect that we have, um, which is great. And I understand that privacy respect. But on the other hand, you know, sometimes it feels like we're respecting the privacy of this virus. Right. What I find fascinating about this as well, Dr. Otto, is that I don't think people realize the crucial role that people like you play in talking about this virus, even though you, you know, you still need information to study it. Because if we're talking about it and keeping it in the news, that means people are thinking about it. We're not just relying on the information that we're getting from health officials. Yeah, that's that's hopefully been the role that we've been playing in the BC um, COVID modeling team is just to provide independent analyses and an independent voice so that so that people can say, oh, they're saying the same thing. Get vaccinated. OK, that, I guess that really matters. OK, so for now, you don't like you're saying this is fine. We're on the right track. You're not overly concerned then about the arrival of American tourists. No, I don't. I, 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 I'm not overly concerned. And that's because. Yes, they have higher rates in the United States, but given that they're vaccinated coming in, I think they're not going to be introducing um, cases any more than we already are because we're already traveling around in our country. 
So it, it, travel, when you don't have something in your country, that's when a travel ban really, really helps. At this point, this seems like a safe slight reopening. All right. Well, if you feel okay about it, then you know what? I'm reassured by that. So Dr. Otto, thank you very much for your time this morning. Absolutely. Thank you. That's Dr. Sarah Otto, professor and mathematical biologist at uh, the University of British Columbia, talking about, yes, the opening of the border right now. So Americans, if in order to enter the country, they need to have lived, be living in the United States, right? Either citizens or permanent residents. They have to have received their second dose of vaccine at least least 14 days prior to arrival and they you know need to show evidence of a negative test no older than 72 hours and then they use the arrive can app or the internet portal to download their vaccination information to the Canadian government that's why it's taking longer to process people as they arrive at the border this morning it's not just a how long are you going to be here and and see you and enjoy yourself uh, there's lots more information so this is new but how are you feeling about this do you feel like, all right, this is fine. We're going to be okay. We've got the proper precautions in place. Or are you a little apprehensive? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you see the lineup of cars at the Peace Arch border crossing this morning and a lot of them with boats, as we heard from reporter Andrew McPherson earlier. We hear of lineups at the ferry terminals with American tourists. Does that mean that tourism industry can be cautiously optimistic about what is happening? Let's find out now. Walt Judas is with us, CEO of the BC Tourism Association. Walt, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me. Sydney. How, Good morning. How are you feeling this morning with the news of the border being opened? Well, I think cautiously optimistic is probably a very good term. Industry is no question excited about the prospect of welcoming American visitors back. And, and now that we are seeing with the borders open lineups, that's a, a, a strong sign that Americans want to return to Canada. Some are anxious to visit with friends and family. Others have second homes here, but we certainly hope that people from the U.S. who are visiting for recreational purposes will spread out throughout the province and enjoy the activities that they're accustomed to when they visit British Columbia. Have you heard of any kind of increase in bookings in any places? Not yet, although we have had lots of inquiries over the last several weeks, but there is also this um, last-minute uh, trepidation, if you will, to see if, in fact, the border's would open so people are waiting uh, to the last minute to book and we'll start to see that I think in the coming weeks to be sure but it's a little too early to tell just how far afield Americans will be traveling into the year that being said uh, they are lined up at the border and uh, we take that as a good sign that they want to travel here albeit there are still places that they might be a bit cautious about especially those where the wildfires are taking place. But on the other hand, uh, we know Americans have been inquiring for weeks about when they can visit and if, in fact, we would follow through and open the borders to them. So uh, cautiously optimistic is a good way to look at it then. Um, when you see them coming through, are, are companies ready or is the tourism industry ready for that though, Walt? I mean, I know that the labor shortage has been a huge issue. Well, no question. We've been ready for a long, long time. But at the same time, as you just alluded to, we do have our challenges with labor shortages. And that's across pretty much every sector within tourism. And it's very acute, probably a worse situation than we've ever seen. 
uh, compounded by the fact that, uh, you know, you've got areas of the province now where we are struggling with the wildfires. And um, even though those areas are still open and businesses want to carry on, they've had to readjust and, and in some cases have lost some staff yet again or staff are hesitant to return. So it's a big challenge for us. But at the same time, there are certain sectors that rely almost exclusively on U.S. visitors, and those are the ones that are most prepared. And now it's a matter of making sure that we can get those people into British Columbia. Aside from the land border being open, we have the air border being opened and making sure that there are enough flights that are coming from the key destinations. Uh, But we still also have the challenge that the marine border is not yet open. And, uh, And that's necessary for Uh, businesses like the Victoria Clipper, for example, that service the Washington state market. So uh, we're not completely out of the woods yet, but uh, and we have our challenges. But at the same time, this is a really good step for our industry to see Americans back. What kind of a difference does that marine border opening make? Well, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of uh, businesses that rely on those visitors to come to places like Victoria and ultimately to Vancouver and the rest of the province when they can come up by the Coho or the Clipper Ferry uh, out of Victoria. And it makes a huge difference. There are a lot of boaters that want to visit as well. Our uh, marinas are typically full of American boaters, and now there are limitations certainly on what they can do and when they can come and and the quarantine protocols, etc. So having the marine border, aside from the cruise industry uh, open is uh, is paramount for many operators along the coast. I guess because the, the time limit is short here, right? Uh, we've got the U.S. border open today and on September, the into September there, we're talking about international visitors too. We are. And, uh, you know, when, uh, when you said again, cautiously optimistic, I mean, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's necessary to have the U.S. border open, and we're happy that it is, but we're a long way through our peak tourism season. There isn't a lot of time left for operators to earn the revenues that they need to sustain themselves for the rest of the year. And the international border that much later in September is probably not going to help salvage 2021 in a, in a big way. Certainly, we're looking further afield to next year and beyond. But uh, at the same time, you know, it's a, it's a good start, uh, but we aim to see the international border open and hopefully we can continue to attract the kinds of visitors that we had in previous years, but it's certainly not going to happen this year. Now, how was the industry supported by locals? I know, you know, for the last year, it's been vacation in your own backyard and a lot of people have been doing exactly that. Was that a lifeline, Walt, for the industry? In many respects, yes. No question that was very, very helpful. But at the same time, there are major attractions, by way of example, that didn't see the kinds of volumes or they can't rely exclusively on local business or even domestic business in general. As we've talked about uh, previously, domestic visitors don't spend the kind of money that international visitors do. So while it helped keep the doors open and certainly helped continue the employment for many tourism 
workers. It certainly wasn't enough to sustain these businesses over the long term. Hence the reason they relied on some government support and, uh, and are looking very much forward to welcoming international visitors again. So you really do, and the math doesn't compute then without international visitors. That's exactly it. Okay, so ramping up then this week, when do you think you'll get an idea of how things are looking? Next couple of days, couple of weeks? Yeah, I would say that uh, starting this week, we'll, we'll uh, certainly have indication of how many bookings and where people are going. You alluded to BC Ferries, and perhaps there are a lot of people going to Vancouver Island, which is smoke-free and, and, uh, and is a popular destination for Americans, to be sure. But, uh, yeah, we'll have a better indication, I would say, this week and into next week, what the bookings look like for the remainder of the year. All right, we'll have to check back in. Walt, thank you. Thank you, Simi. Walt Judas is the CEO of the BC Tourism Association. They are, and those are the words of the day, the watchwords, cautiously optimistic now that the Canadian border is opened up as of this morning to fully vaccinated American travelers. You know, earlier we spoke with Dr. Sarah Otto, who's a professor and mathematical biologist at UBC, and she was saying that she doesn't feel like this is going to be a huge problem. She said, you know, she feels that the measures that they put in place are good here. Uh, so somebody coming here has to be American citizen or permanent resident. They have to have received their second dose of vaccine at least 14 days prior to arrival, and they have to show evidence of a negative COVID test no older than 72 hours, and they have to use the ArriveCan app or an internet portal to download all of their vaccination information. So processing people at the border is taking, obviously, longer than usual. So the wait right now is extensive. It's uh, more than an hour, and the cars are backed up to about the Peace Arch Monument. We heard that from our global news reporter, Andrew McPherson, who's down there. Keep in mind, they've got three lanes open, right? Normally, you'd have a lot more than that open. Uh, But people are coming, and it looks like they're coming for recreational travel. So are you okay with that? Do you think, yes, this is the boost we need? Or given what has been going on with, you know, COVID-19, the Delta variant, rising cases here in BC, big concerns in the central Okanagan, are you at all apprehensive about this? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, we're also going to talk about farms this morning because we, you know, we've been taking suggestions from uh, all of you out there about farms that we should like profile and feature all summer long. And it's been amazing because we talked to, you know, farming collectives. We talked to organic farms. We talked to family run operations. Oh, we talked to a flower farm. They were amazing. Five acre mm. flowers in um, the Fraser Valley. And Raji, you checked in with Hop on Farms in South Burnaby too, which was, I loved that story. Yeah. And now you've got another kind of unique farm to talk talk about. Yeah, I love this one. Um, yeah, I, I visited Lutet Farms. They're on the North Shore on Rufus Street in North Van. It's this like plot of land sandwiched between a residential neighborhood, a school field, and, and a pretty common path, actually. But the first time I ever found out about it was in my favorite way, which is that I literally physically stumbled across it. I saw, I was in my car, I was driving, and I saw a stream of cars pulling into a parking lot on a Wednesday at 2 p.m. And I was like, hmm, why is everyone, it must be like a school right there or something. And then I see, I pull up to the parking lot as well myself because I'm that nosy. And I see <laughs> this table of, with like a no, huge no, amount curious. of veggies. 
<laughs> yes, curious. Thank you. I see this table with like a massive amount of vegetables piled up on it, and and all these big, beautiful wildflower bouquets, and then folks lined up like they're at a music festival. They're just like the most enthusiastic, happy people ever. And I'm like, what? Is there a market here? And I'm looking around, like, where is the the farm or where are the other vendors or you know? And I look beyond, beyond the lines of those people that are milling about there, and there is a farm there, but. It's a tiny one. It's a really small one. And that little farm is Lutet. And I chatted with uh, their program manager, Claire McGillivray. This is our um, under an acre of farm uh, space. So we That's have... small for a farm. Yeah, it's really small. But it's kind of nice because it's sort of a community size. But yeah, we don't use any tractors. We have like a small um, gas-powered rototiller that it's very easy to, for one person to, to manage. Um, but other than that, it's all done by hand. So, And we can still grow a ton of food here. Uh, under an and acre? That's amazing. So, Simi, she says under an acre. That's including the like almost one third, I would guess, that is the flowers. So we well under an acre for just the vegetables. And like, they really do grow a ton of food there. They've got three greenhouses that are just crammed, packed in there. There's like not a spare inch that is not being used properly. One of the greenhouses is this uh, one housing tomatoes. And I walked in there as anyone, by the way, any of our listeners are welcome to do. Anyone's allowed to just walk into their greenhouses. It's open to the community. Um, you're not welcome to just go ahead and pick, but you are welcome to walk in, check it out. So I opened the door to the greenhouse. I'm no gardener. Like I'm not much of one anyway. And I was overwhelmed by the most incredible smell of fresh tomatoes. And then they're curing a massive amount of garlic right now, which is hugely popular with uh, people in the neighborhood. People wait for the moment when they when they release those. Uh, they, they sell uh, at their market just twice a week. And they told me that everything there is just intensively managed. Right in front of us, there's a new crop of carrots that's coming up. So you can just see the little green mm -hmm. carrots coming up. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. They're tiny. Earlier this year, we had a first crop. Um, so all four of those rows, well, five, actually, that one underneath that um, fabric there is also carrots. Um, they were all grown, uh, growing here all spring. We harvested them all in July, and now they're already growing their second crop. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about intensively managed. Every single row, pretty much as soon as it's empty, something else goes in so we can continue growing all season. That is phenomenal because I've been taking a look at some of their produce and the pictures online and Raji, everything looks like picture perfect, just absolutely beautiful. It totally does. And I have gone uh, numerous times and picked up so many delicious vegetables that someone has like, you know, picked that day. And just knowing how tightly knit the community is around it too, it's, it's run by volunteers and not just a few of them. They have heaps, huge amount of volunteers that give their time into this. And I love that. And, you know, as I was standing there recording this uh, story with Claire, so many people walked by and had to like, you know, they wanted to wait and tell me their side of like how they, how much they love having the farm there and how much it's, they enjoy having it uh, be a part of their community. And it made me think, wow, like they all feel so lucky. I feel personally like every community should have a lutet. It's something that we should all have. Um, she talked there about how they intensively manage their crops. Um, they grow everything from seed 
There's no spray. They do, uh, you know, soil regeneration there. And they also mined the pests pretty well. They use a reme, this like kind of white fabric that goes over the crops. And that's their main form of pest management. Pest Amazing. management. But one thing that she did mention to me is that there is a certain kind of pest they haven't forgot, uh, figured out how to get rid of. And that is teenagers. What? <laughs> like she coming in at, in the, at nighttime or something? Yeah. So again, people are welcome to come in at nighttime. They don't have a problem with that. Um, and they do see people coming in at all hours, <laughs> enjoying the crops. Um, however, there are people who come in and have been vandalizing. So that's something that they still got to figure <sighs> out to something around. I need to go and visit this place because you talked about how different it is. But tell us more about how. Yes, I mean, it's a really special place. And apparently the program for this farm, there's just none like it in Canada. It was uniquely started by a program in architecture at UBC over 10 years ago. And it's like a collaboration between the city and the university and other partners like the Edible Garden Project. And they got it going um, after several years of trying to secure the land, which you can imagine is no easy feat in our city. Um, and also the scale is different. It's under an acre. That includes about a third of it being like a flower farm and the rest of it fruit and veg. And where the farm is situated is really special too because it's smack dab in the middle of a residential neighborhood, which is pretty unlikely for a farm. And it's the kind of place that if you don't know about it, when you stumble across it, you're like, wow, am I in Wizard of Oz? Like what has happened here? And it's also just incredibly accessible and welcoming. Like a lot of people talk about Lutet Farm in this neighborhood as being like a community garden. But for me, there's a major difference because like I have a couple of community gardens in my own neighborhood and I find it's a very different vibe because I find those places, Simi, I don't know about you, but to sometimes be kind of territorial. Yeah. You know, like people have their little plots of land and for every like one square meter of soil, there's a huge or at least disproportionately sized passive aggressive sign about do not touch, <laughs> don't come near, so like true. practically do not look at this garden because it's mine, mine, mine. In fact, I've even like taken my kids when they were toddlers to one of them that they really liked a lot and we'd go there frequently. And at one point I remember someone barking at my kid saying, do not touch, but she hadn't touched and she was quite far away from the flowers. <laughs> So she was just kind yeah. of expecting that to happen. You know what I'm talking about, yes. right? Also, I feel that though, sometimes they can be a little competitive, right? Like I'm growing onions, oh, but yeah. look at how those onions are doing in that person's plot over there. For sure. So Lutet Farms, like similarity in, in community gardening, it only goes, the major similarity there is just that they also are small. Lutet Farm is like really small and it's actually community-based. Here's their program manager, Claire McGillivray. Every day, there's tons of people walking with their dogs, their families, um, walking through the farm. We have tons of people that come by every single day, and they're always, like, keeping track of, you know, they'll be like, oh, it looks like that's growing really well, or they'll, you know, come and take pictures of the staff doing the work and send them to us, which is really nice. This place is really, I don't know, supported by the community and created by and for the community. I mean, we would not be able to do what we do here all of this growing with just the paid staff so there's only three of us that work all year round and then we have two seasonal staff and then we have tons of volunteers and interns and that is truly what enables us to keep existing really is it hard to get volunteers 
Not really, especially when COVID started, we had a ton more interest because a lot of people, first of all, they couldn't really leave their neighborhood. And also people were so excited to learn about gardening and farming. And once they found us as an opportunity to do that, they were just like, I want to get involved. It's amazing. So how do they make this work? How do they subsist like this? Utet's a social sustainability enterprise. They're trying to run a farm for the community that respects the environment and also somehow makes enough profits to cover their costs. So, of course, there's so many costs that go into running a farm. There is ordering compost every year. Um, building up our soil is a huge part of our, um, our process here. That's why we don't want to use um, chemically synthesized fertilizers, and it's why we don't have to use as many um, pesticides, things like that. We is really- that a lot of work? Yes, it is, but it's also, you're kind of thinking about the long-term gains of having healthy soil. So trying to make sure that we're rotating crops, adding amendments that are not chemically synthesized, and just making sure that we're being conscious of how much we're planting, how much we're harvesting. There's the cost of the seeds, um, all the supplies that you see, like all of the irrigation um, often needs to be fixed or, or updated. Uh, our greenhouses cost money, of course, to set those up. Um, all the things that we use for processing our our products, so whether we're bagging salad or even just the elastic bands that we use to bunch carrots, everything like that um, costs money. So, Is that lost on consumers? I think that's a huge reason why we love having volunteers here. It's partly so that people can learn how to grow food and partly just so that people understand what it takes to grow food. But there's a ton of skill that goes into growing food, even on this scale, which is really quite small in the scheme of things. Oh, but given what they produce, that takes a heck of a lot of skill. Yeah, heck of a lot of skills, so much volunteer work, so many people pitch in to help out. It's just a lovely, Lutet Farm is a really special, lovely place in North Vancouver. I uh, really encourage our listeners to come and check it out. Oh, they should. Thank you for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi.